You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 427 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we get back to Chattanooga, we have two pieces of news that we want to share here at the beginning of the show. We've already shared this news this past week on social media, so some of you might already know what this is about. But announcement number one is that after 10 plus years and 400 plus episodes, moving forward, we're going to be using a new design for the podcast logo. A new design is an idea we've been thinking about for a while, and after narrowing it down to a couple of possibilities, we both really like the same one. So that's the one that we chose, and we'll be using it moving forward. And then announcement number two is that we've signed on to be a part of Airwave Media. Airwave is a podcast network that's home to other great history podcasts like The Age of Napoleon and History of the Second World War. We're excited about partnering with Airwave. It'll allow us to not only grow our audience, but also give us the opportunity to tap into some of the ad money swirling around podcasts these days. That means a bit of extra income for us each month, but obviously there will be a few ads or promos included with each episode. If you listen to podcasts these days, you know it's highly unusual to listen to a show that doesn't include ads, so this shouldn't really be anything new for most of you, and it shouldn't be at all intrusive. However, we will let you know that the folks who support the podcast as members of the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon will continue to get all the regular and members episodes ad-free as part of your membership. The Strawfoot Brigade, that is the membership program over on Patreon, will be completely separate from our partnership with Airwave. All right, so that's our big news. We're very excited about the new logo for the podcast and about our new partnership with Airwave, and we hope that you are too. But now, having made those announcements, let's get back to Chattanooga. (music) 
We want to start off by talking about the aftermath of the Battle of Wahatchee. As you guys will recall, the fighting, which took place during the night of October 28th, 29th, 1863, was over by the morning of the 29th. There were basically two separate actions. There was the engagement at Wahatchee between Geary's Federals from 12th Corps and on the Confederate side, Bratton's Brigade of South Carolinians from Jenkins' Division. Then there was the action down the road, closer to Brown's Ferry, between two brigades of Alabamans, Texans, and Arkansans under the overall command of Evander Law and Federals from Schertz's 11th Corps Division. When all was said and done and the sun rose over Lookout Valley on the morning of the 29th, the butcher's bill for those encounters was, on the Confederate side, about 405 casualties for Bratton and Law, and on the Federal side, around 415 casualties for Geary and Schertz. With the rising of the sun, the Battle of Wahatchee was over, but the repercussions were just beginning. Hooker was embarrassed that his carelessness had nearly resulted in disaster for Geary, and so Fighting Joe cast about for a scapegoat, and he settled on Carl Schertz, even though Hooker himself had caused much of the confusion by giving orders directly to Schertz, which conflicted with the instructions the German-born officer received from 11th Corps commander Oliver Otis Howard. Well, Hooker conveniently overlooked this, and in his after-action report, he threw Schertz under the bus. Carl Schertz was outraged, and he was eventually exonerated by a court of inquiry called at his request. But when 11th and 12th Corps were officially consolidated under Hooker's command, he got rid of both Howard and Schertz. In any case, the loss of Lookout Valley and the subsequent opening of the Federal's cracker line was a serious disaster for the Confederates, and the way in which it came about was yet another indication of the dysfunctional nature of the Army of Tennessee's high command. That's because James Longstreet had the responsibility for the Confederate left, including Lookout Mountain and Lookout Valley. But Old Pete failed to perform at anywhere near a competent level when it came to preparing a defensive plan to deal with the federal move against his sector. As we talked about, Longstreet, for some reason, became convinced that any enemy attempt to relieve Chattanooga would come up from the south, despite the fact the best and most common sense way for the federals to open a new supply line into the town would be for them to approach Lookout Valley from the west. Longstreet should have assigned a large portion of his command to prevent that, but instead only two regiments, the 4th and 15th Alabama, were posted in Lookout Valley. Due to the Confederates' logistical difficulties, it would have been a challenge to keep a large force supplied in the valley, but those two regiments were obviously an inadequate defensive force and there should have been a contingency plan in place to quickly move more troops into Lookout Valley in response to a federal move in that sector. 
but no such plan had been prepared at Longstreet's headquarters. And so the Confederate reaction to Hooker's march down the valley toward Brown's Ferry ended up being a rushed and confused affair, a night attack of all things, that unsurprisingly ended in failure. When all was said and done, Longstreet's decision to ignore Bragg's instructions to send scouts toward Bridgeport to warn of any federal movement from that location meant that Hooker's approach was undetected. And when combined with Old Pete's failure to adequately protect Lookout Valley, it meant that Ulysses S. Grant was able to rather easily reestablish a supply line to Chattanooga. Braxton Bragg understood the goings-on there on the Confederate left, with the capture of Brown's Ferry and Hooker's movement into Lookout Valley, placed his entire operation at Chattanooga in serious jeopardy. The Federals' easy victory in opening the Cracker Line marked the abrupt end of any chance Bragg had of starving the Yankees into surrender or undertaking a ruinous retreat. Bragg now had to come up with a different plan for the campaign, and none of his options was very attractive. Assuming he was unwilling to retreat and thus concede the effort to retake Chattanooga had been a failure, his choices were either to undertake an offensive movement or simply remain on the passive defensive. Well, remaining on the defensive would almost certainly end in disaster since it would give Grant time to gather an overwhelming force and select the precise time and place he would launch a major attack against Bragg's lines. That left an offensive operation as the only option, either a frontal assault or an attempt to turn one of the federal flanks. A frontal assault against the heavily fortified federal lines protecting Chattanooga would have little hope of success. It would also make little sense to attempt a turning movement around the Yankees' right, that is, to the west, since it would take the Confederates directly into the path of a large enemy force, commanded by William Tecumseh Sherman, that was marching toward Chattanooga from that direction. The only remaining choice was a turning movement around Grant's left into East Tennessee, although such an operation would have to contend with the federal force up in Knoxville, commanded by Ambrose Burnside. Happily for Bragg, a move against Burnside was promising in several ways. When Burnside had moved south from Kentucky into East Tennessee and seized Knoxville, he had severed the direct rail link between Chattanooga and Virginia. So now, if Bragg cleared Burnside out of Knoxville, he would reopen that rail link. A move against Burnside would also allow Bragg to please Jefferson Davis, since the Confederate president had suggested slash requested that Bragg consider moving troops up into East Tennessee to deal with Burnside. As an added benefit, sending a force north to recapture Knoxville would allow Braxton Bragg to rid himself of James Longstreet. After the debacle in Lookout Valley, Bragg was more than ready to part ways with Longstreet, even though it would mean a diminishment of his numbers at Chattanooga. 
As you guys will recall, Longstreet had been unhappy since Bragg refused to follow his advice in the aftermath of the Battle of Chickamauga. Old Pete's hurt feelings led him to join in with and become a leading figure in the anti-Bragg clique of officers within the Army of Tennessee's high command. Things came to a head with Jefferson Davis's visit to the Army when, with Bragg sitting right in the room, Longstreet had said he didn't see how the Army could have any hope of success if Bragg remained in command. When Jefferson Davis returned to Richmond, he left Bragg in command and allowed Bragg to make some changes to the Army's command structure and organization. But removing Longstreet wasn't part of any of that. Longstreet's excellent reputation as corps commander under Robert E. Lee and his political connections meant that sacking him wasn't an option. And so Longstreet had remained a thorn in Bragg's side. However, now, by sending Longstreet off to have a go at Burnside and hopefully retake Knoxville, Bragg would finally rid himself of Old Pete. Also, although Bragg would lose Longstreet's two divisions, he would make up a bit of that troop loss, because Jefferson Davis had said he was not only sending William Hardee back to the Army of Tennessee, but Davis told Bragg that if Bragg detached Longstreet and his men to strike at Burnside, then Davis would have Hardee bring two brigades with him when Hardee rejoined the army. And, just a side note, but Hardee was returning to the army to replace Leonidas Polk. As y'all will recall, Polk had been not just the ringleader of the anti-Bragg clique, but he had, in Bragg's eyes, inexcusably dropped the ball at Chickamauga. And so, after the battle, Bragg had removed Polk from command. So, to replace Polk, William Hardee was returning to the army. Such was the soap opera that was the high command of the Army of Tennessee. Well, at any rate, as far as Longstreet, Braxton Bragg, on November 4th, issued the order sending Old Pete off to deal with Burnside up at Knoxville. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. 
Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. While Braxton Bragg was seizing the opportunity to rid himself of James Longstreet, across the way, Ulysses S. Grant, now that the Cracker Line was open, was chomping at the bit to launch a major attack and break the Confederate lines and end the frustrating stalemate that had kept the Federals bottled up in Chattanooga. But the offensive that Grant was so eager to undertake had to wait for the arrival of his most trusted lieutenant, William Tecumseh Sherman, who was leading four divisions, about 20,000 men, toward Chattanooga. Tracy mentioned a few moments ago that Sherman was marching toward Chattanooga from the west, and although he was moving as rapidly as he could, a number of obstacles stood in his way. Sherman's tough veterans were good marchers, but they were being called upon to make an epic journey. As y'all may recall, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck had cast about for troops to reinforce Rosecrans in Tennessee even before the Battle of Chickamauga. As part of this strategic chess match, Halleck had instructed Grant, who was then at Vicksburg, out in Mississippi, to send what troops he could spare. Grant had no sooner started a division on its way to reinforce Rosecrans when word arrived of Rosecrans' defeat at Chickamauga. That news was followed by even more urgent demands from Washington that Grant send more troops to Tennessee. Grant had thereupon decided to send Sherman with three more divisions. Sherman moved promptly, but was delayed by orders from Halleck that he repair the line of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad as he moved eastward, using it as a line of supply and advancing no farther than his track crews could get the line fixed and his patrols and garrisons kept the Confederate guerrillas from wrecking it again. In an area that had for over a year been infested with guerrilla activity, this was a tall order and it slowed Sherman's march east to a crawl. You see, Halleck had been anxious that Sherman have a separate line of supply back to Memphis, so as not to burden further the Army of the Cumberland's already overtaxed line of supply that ran from Chattanooga back to Nashville. However, giving Sherman the task of repairing and guarding 330 miles of track back to Memphis was likely to keep him and his men from reaching Chattanooga for the foreseeable future. When Grant reached Chattanooga in late October, the desperate situation there convinced him that Sherman had better forget the railroad. He sent a message to Sherman telling him to, quote, drop all work on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad and hurry eastward with all possible dispatch toward Bridgeport. With what Grant called, quote, unquote, 
characteristic promptness, Sherman obeyed. He had received Grant's message while he was at Iuka, Mississippi, which was well over 200 miles from Bridgeport in northeastern Alabama. But, now no longer tied to the line of the Memphis and Charleston, Sherman pushed ahead rapidly, and, although forced to skirmish frequently with rebel cavalry, his lead units reached the Elk River on November 4th. The Elk was wide and deep here at its mouth, and the only way of crossing it was a small ferry that would be far too slow in moving his men from one bank to the other. So Sherman simply had his men set off again, marching up the valley of the Elk. By November 8th, he was in Fayetteville, Tennessee, but still more than 100 miles from Chattanooga. Meanwhile, Grant wasn't ignoring the question of supply that Halleck had attempted to solve by ordering Sherman to restore the railroad all the way from Memphis. Grant had a better idea, though, for accomplishing the same goal. You see, just before setting out from Iuka, Sherman had ordered Major General Grenville Dodge to take a reinforced division of 16th Corps, totaling about 8,000 men, and follow him as he struck out for Tennessee. However, Grant knew that Dodge was not only a good general, but also, in civilian life, he'd been in the business of building railroads, and had been very successful at it. So now, Grant sent orders to Dodge, telling him not to follow after Sherman, but instead to rebuild and maintain, not the entire length of the Memphis and Charleston, but rather to start with a much more accessible Nashville and Decatur Railroad, up to the point it linked up with the Memphis and Charleston. And then Dodge could tackle that last stretch of the Memphis and Charleston. This was a much more realistic assignment, and as Grant expected, Dodge was just the man to do it. With energy and resourcefulness, he got the lines running and kept them that way, thereby opening up an important additional supply line for Grant. In that way, Grenville Dodge made a significant contribution to the federal effort at Chattanooga, even though he never appeared on the battlefield. While Grenville Dodge was working on the rail lines, Sherman and his men marched along the foot of the Cumberlands near Winchester, Tennessee, where Rosecrans' Tullahoma campaign had halted the previous summer. They crossed the Elk, then plunged into the forbidding mountain country toward Bridgeport, following the line of the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. Although the tail end of his column was still near Winchester, Sherman himself reached Bridgeport on November 13th and sent a wire to Grant informing him of his column's progress. Upon receiving the news that Sherman was at Bridgeport, Grant, who was eager to see his favorite subordinate, told Sherman to hurry on to Chattanooga by steamboat. Sherman's arrival was like a breath of fresh air for Grant and he greeted Sherman with such warmth and easy familiarity that it surprised the officers of the Army of the Cumberland. William Hazen, whose troops had seized the bridgehead at Brown's Ferry, noted that Grant and Sherman, quote, were new, 
and different from the commanders we had known before. One of the things Hazen noted about Grant and Sherman, which is kind of funny, is that, quote, they wore vest and coats unbuttoned. <laughs> I guess to Hazen that was kind of business casual. Well, at any rate, Grant was particularly happy to see Sherman because his other top subordinates at Chattanooga, George Thomas and Joe Hooker, didn't seem to have the same hard-charging, can-do attitude that had made Grant's Army of the Tennessee such a formidable force out in Mississippi. It hadn't taken Grant long to sour on George Thomas. It started when it became obvious to Ambrose Burnside up in Knoxville that the Confederates at Chattanooga were shifting forces in his direction, and he wasted no time in calling for help. As you guys may recall, Abraham Lincoln had a well-known and long-standing sensitivity about East Tennessee, since it was a Unionist region. And now that there was a threat the Confederates might retake Knoxville, alarm bells started to ring in the War Department, and Halleck began to bombard Grant with dispatches imploring him to do something to help Burnside. On November 7th, after Learning Bragg had detached Longstreet and sent him toward Knoxville, Grant gave George Thomas a direct order to attack the right side of the Confederate lines at Chattanooga, and in that way relieve some of the pressure on Burnside. Thomas, however, told Grant there was no way he could make an attack. He explained that the weeks of near starvation inside the Federal lines at Chattanooga had taken a fearful toll on the draft animals in his command, leaving him with almost no horses or mules strong enough to move his artillery pieces or pull wagons to bring up ammunition and supplies to the troops as they advanced. Grant told Thomas to scour the Army's lines for mules, to use officers' horses, to do whatever it would take to find animals to pull the guns, and to forget about the supply wagons. But still, Thomas insisted mounting an attack was impossible. And so, finally, Grant gave up. But his confidence in George Thomas's ability to get things done had hit rock bottom. Because Thomas wouldn't or couldn't carry out Grant's orders, Grant, with considerable frustration, had to answer the War Department's pleadings with assurances he was doing all he could to help Burnside, which at the moment was precisely nothing. And so Grant was more than happy at Sherman's arrival on the scene. Sherman was his most trusted lieutenant, and Grant had complete confidence in him to get things done. The day after Sherman reached Chattanooga, he, Grant, George Thomas, and Baldy Smith rode out to view the terrain and the positions of the armies, and to come up with a plan to strike Bragg a blow that would break the Confederate lines and end the stalemate that had kept the Federals bottled up in Chattanooga. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and the Native Peoples in the Fight for the West by Megan Kate Nelson. 
Now, the Three-Cornered War obviously doesn't have anything to do with Chattanooga, but it came out several years ago, and we just got around to reading it. And wow, it's really excellent. So even though we're a bit late to the party, we wanted to go ahead and let you guys know about it. As you guys will recall, back in episodes 96 through 99 of the podcast, we looked at Sibley's New Mexico campaign and the Confederacy's failed bid to invade the desert southwest and conquer New Mexico and open the way to California. Well, in the three-cornered war, Megan Kate Nelson takes a deep dive into that little-known but incredibly important part of the Civil War. She crafts an eminently readable narrative using the experiences of nine different people, both men and women, to shed light on that complex struggle for territorial control. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we start to bring the curtain down on this episode, we want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Timothy R., Alan L., and James G., Dorian, John Q., Patrick S., and Becky, Louis O., Marshall H., and Tasselhoff Suncatcher. And for their recent donations, a big thank you to Charles Y., Buzz S., and Jeff. And Dave B., Nate J., James M., and John N. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War and Reconstruction, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.